Back in 2020, Edward Silva had earned his MBA and had one ag tech startup under his belt. But rather than go back into the startup scene, he opted to go a different path, looking for an existing profitable business in the industry he knew best, agriculture. Labor, water and inputs. These are the three things that, if, you know, you want to drive my dad's heart pressure up. You know, you talk about the lack of any of those things and it's like it still pains him as a farmer. Edwards' approach, called a search fund or entrepreneurship through acquisition, sent him on a search for a quote-unquote boring or traditional business where the current owners were now ready to sell. He found the perfect opportunity for him in H-2A visa consulting company, Moss Labor. You know, H-2A visas have been growing about 20% a year for the last five years at minimum. You don't see growth rates like that in agriculture that often. Long story short, I dug in, did my market analysis, and then realized, like, okay, there's something going on really special here in ag labor. Today, Edward talks about the importance of this source of ag labor and his journey from farmer to founder to searcher to business owner, and why he's glad he took this path of entrepreneurship through acquisition. If we win, Moss Labor wins, American businesses win, and those workers in Mexico win, which has a whole host of positive socioeconomic and political implications, which is, you know, we can actually help some businesses here. Ag labor, H-2A visas, and buying an existing ag company, all on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow Agner. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, before we dive in, I want to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is a company that tells you what you don't want to know. Every three seconds, FarmWave's Harvest Vision system is counting your harvest losses off the header and from the combine and reporting them to you in the cab in real time. Make changes on the fly and watch your loss counts drop without having to stop or do manual harvest loss counts again. Models are currently available in corn and soybeans with several other crops in development for release soon. But don't take my word for it. Listen to an actual FarmWave customer. The loss sensors on our combine were debatable at best. There are some days they worked perfect and gave us an accurate idea of how much loss we were having. And there was other days where they weren't close. And, and so it was con kind of this constant struggle of my, my factory sensors are showing loss. Is it true? So you were constantly not only fighting the sensors, but actually true loss in the field. So if, if you're not confident in the seat on your factory loss sensors, FarmWave is a great addition, or if you have an inexperienced operator running another machine, this is a great way to kind of keep tabs on, on everybody. Um, and again, it's not going to be perfect and tell you the exact bushel loss, but if it's going to point out trends that you can then make changes on, that's, it, it'll be a good fit for their operation. Join the ranks of farmers deploying Harvest Vision in their fields to ensure no bushel gets left behind. Put AI to work on your farm. Just visit farmwave.io to chat with one of their experts or locate a dealer near you. Thank you so much to FarmWave for supporting farm innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Edward Silva. Edward is the CEO of Moss Labor and AgWorks, the nation's leading providers of H-2A, which is agriculture, and H-2B, which is non-ag, labor solutions. 
Solutions. As one of six children of Portuguese immigrants, Edward and his brothers grew up farming in California's Central Valley for their family's almond and grape operation. Edward's academic background includes studies in international ag development from my alma mater, UC Davis, and an MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business. He's dedicated his company's mission to saving U.S. businesses by helping them secure the workforce they need to successfully run their operation. Moss Labor, under his leadership, represents more clients, more industries, and more geographies than any other service provider for H-2 visas. One cool part about today's episode is that Edward had actually reached out to me via LinkedIn direct message cold in uh, October of 2020, so over three years ago now. He was fresh out of business school, and he had a search fund. He was looking for a business to buy. Uh, I'm going to read his message later in today's episode and explain why it's so memorable for me and why it's cool that he's back here on the podcast three years later as a guest. So fun little part of the story here. But not only do we talk about the need for ag labor and some of the challenges and opportunities around the H-2A process, but we also talk about his journey of entrepreneurship through acquiring this company and then since acquiring a second company as well. First, though, Edward shares a little bit about what Moss Labor does and the services that they offer to businesses. talk about this really is thinking about our service in three big buckets. The first bucket is, you know, in order to get a worker for 10 months coming in on an H2 visa from Mexico, you have to do all of the government filings. There's three federal agencies and a state agency that you have to work through. And our company helps people navigate that whole process. We're, we're their river guide through that process. Second, you know, most small medium American businesses don't have a network of workers in Mexico to go pull from once they actually have approval for the jobs. And so we, through partners and our own efforts, we go out and identify the right workers, recruit them, and then coordinate logistics to get them literally from their home to the US consulate in that country, all the way into the United States to their job site. Those workers are in country for about 10 months on average. And in those 10 months, that's where we provide our third bucket of service, which is the in-country compliance. If something happens with the worker, or there's a payroll question or issue, or, you know, say that the employer gets audited, as the Department of Labor will and does audit these employers. We're kind of the right-hand partner with those HR teams and back office to get them through all of the, the kind of hairiness that comes with, with that. And we'll do that all the way until the workers go back home and we're willing to even help get them on a bus or plane back to their home country. And so we think about it as like full soup to nuts. If you, if you need reliable, legal, capable labor, you're not sure how to do it, we will help take care of the full process for you. Okay, so it's kind of like the 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 pre preparation and process that you'd start with would be the first bucket. The second one would be kind of the recruitment or how do you actually find the right people and get them here? And then the third is sort of the compliance from beginning to end uh, for them to return home safely and everybody gets what they want out of the deal. Um, is this always with Mexico? Is is H2 specific to Mexico? So actually, this our primary visas we work on is H2A, and that's primarily agriculture. The A doesn't stand for agriculture, randomly enough. It just, in the regulations, came before H2B, which is uh, the non-agricultural visas, which is primarily landscaping, hospitality, construction. We're the largest in the country. I'm servicing both of those visas by number of workers and number of applications, which I can get into. For both of these programs, you know, the idea is you really don't want the worker paying anything to come into the country because that can present a whole host of issues. They have to go take out loans and this and that. So, the regulation says, no, 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 they don't do that. The employer's on the hook for everything from transportation from their home all the way into the United States and room and board. And so because of that, and because of the size of Mexico's population, uh, Mexico just tends to be, you know, I would fathom to guess, 
north of 70, if not 80% of all the workers that come in on H2 visas are coming out of Mexico. And it's really a proximity question. For agriculture, there also is a skill-based piece, which is, you know, in Mexico, there are farms of similar size to a number of those in the United States at a higher rate than you might find in Guatemala or El Salvador or Honduras. And so, so Mexico, for many reasons, serves as kind of the main H2 country. Did I hear you right? Did you say the average stay is 10 months? Is that what you said? I think I figure I want to get precise, but it's got to be like 8.7 or something like that. But yeah, to use these visas, you've got to prove seasonality. And the idea around this is, you know, the, these workers, and I can go into how this, this actually makes the program politically palatable for both sides. But the intention is these workers aren't supposed to take American jobs. And one of the ways that they avoid that is that these workers are only taking seasonal jobs. And so the, the firms that use these guest workers have to prove seasonality in the labor need they have. And so the Department of Labor said, well, look, anything more than 10 months is not, quote unquote, seasonal. There's nothing in the regulations that say exactly 10 months, but it's sort of one of those unwritten rules. And so 10 months is kind of what we advise is the maximum. But there's some give and take there. Some clients in the country bring in workers for two months to do a quick harvest. They need 50 guys to you know, do a harvest that's going to take two months, and they're going to send them elsewhere. But about you know, between eight and 10 months is the average. Okay. And I mean, in production agriculture, it's got to be pretty easy to prove seasonality. You know, I mean, it's going to eight months would be, a, I would guess, a long stay if I if I thinking I want someone to come help for the growing season. So if I'm in that situation, I'm a farmer and I, I could use some seasonal work. Uh, what considerations do I need to have in mind before I go down this road of an H-2A? I would say the, the number one, so if you're on H-2A, the number one certainly is that you can prove, you know, in either contracts or in sort of just the management of your business, maybe it's with weather, but you can truly prove the seasonality. So, for example, most of ag falls under this just well. Uh, dairies, for example, you know, they have a hard time using the program uh, because it's really hard to, to show seasonality if you're milking, you know, uh, dairy cows year round. Mushroom farms are another one. You know, ah, that's tough. You're kind of growing those things year round in controlled environments. But nurseries, vineyards, apple op- operations, you know, all that, as you said, in agriculture, is pretty easy to show seasonality. So you've got to be able to prove seasonality. Uh, the second piece, or a, another big piece, is housing. For H-2A, the employer is on the hook for supplying housing that has to meet state requirements. And the inspection is pretty thorough. You know, we make jokes about it. Some of the nuances in these housing is, is, is kind of wild. You know, certain instructions on the kind of screens you need to have on the windows and lids on trash cans and you can't have eggs on the counter. And a couple, you know, generally, there's the more general stuff that you'd expect around, you know, sufficient airflow and housing and spacing and things you'd want in any good housing for guest workers coming to the United States. But that ends up being the biggest bottleneck for employers who want to navigate this is, you know, you've got to have readily available housing. And in rural areas and throughout the United States, that becomes harder and harder to find for a lot of these uh, businesses. Those, I'd say, are the, are the really two big things. There's a whole host of other additional regulations and investment the client uh, has to take on to be able to leverage and utilize these workers. That gets increasingly complicated, which is where we come in and help clients navigate this. But those two, seasonality and the ability to provide housing, are big ones. One last one I'll add in there is, you know, you also want to make this attractive to the worker. You want the worker to be able to come back. They control the visa. If the worker wants to leave, they can leave. So you have to have a sufficient amount of hours. Um, there's regulations around the minimum number of hours, but you have to have a sufficient amount of hours that's attractive for the worker to actually you know, leave their family for eight to 10 months and come and see the United States to actually do this work. So that's another big criteria as well. 
and and once they're here and they're working, do I pay them as I would any other employee as far as payroll or their extra considerations kind of red tape I need to go through to make sure that that's all, you know, tracked by uh, by the government and above board? Yeah. So by and large, you're going to treat them, you know, exactly the same as domestic worker. You know, they're, they're even paying into uh, Social Security, in, in, which is odd, but, you know, just in, in a lot of ways. But yeah, so they're, they're paying taxes. You're going to treat them as a normal employee. There are certainly some, some pretty nuanced differences in terms of, like, for example, what you have to show on payroll and how you communicate certain things. For example, on payroll for H-2A workers, because they're required a certain number of hours to be offered to them, you actually have to list how many hours were offered to the employer, which is kind of an odd thing to do if you think about, you know, if you're an hourly employee working at McDonald's or something, you know, it's likely not going to say on your paycheck, hey, we offer this employee 60 hours. They only wanted 40, so we paid them 40. It's like, no, no, they paid for 40, we paid them for 40. Here, you have to, you know, hours offered as one small nuance. And there's a host of additional uh, other requirements, but by and large, the, the idea is you need to treat them the same as the domestic worker. The flip side of this is that you need to treat them the same as the domestic worker. So if there's an American worker doing the same exact job as this H2A worker, but maybe the domestic worker is paid a little bit less. They actually need to be paid at the same wage as the H2A worker. And so there, there is, you know, a couple of additional regulations that you know companies need to kind of apply to their hiring and employment practices that again we help folks through that, you know, are additional considerations as they look at this program. Yeah. You know, if I if I'm uh, obviously, I have a seasonal need for labor, for help. Uh, I, I've got you working on all my compliance, so I have the housing, and I'm going to pay to bring them there, and then I have to pay them the same as somebody else. Don't I start to run into the situation of like, maybe I could just afford someone year-round full-time for the same cost, because I wouldn't have to provide housing or transportation. I mean, is that a, a constant sort of calculation between the two? Does it run close, or is it a matter of like, you just literally can't find the person? That, that is a, a great question. And I, I can tell you, you know, anecdotally, and I actually visited a client this morning, uh, you know, during different parts of the year, by different teams in the company will go out and just visit clients, see how they're doing, asking questions. And so we visited a local client here about 30, 40 minutes outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, nursery grower uh, with about 80 workers now, been in the program for five or six years. And, you know, very savvy operation, you know, and they're sophisticated and they're running different business models. And, you know, in some instances are a price taker, you know, they're, they're, they're a sophisticated operation. And the way they think about it, and what the guy, the individual told me there, their CFO said, look, the, the H2A worker, one, we can't find American workers who want to do this job, this work. Two, a lot of the work in their instances is actually pretty seasonal. Part of the year, we're like, you know, we don't actually need that many staff. But the bigger piece was, he said, look, the H2A worker that's here, they are three times more productive in terms of their output and what they do. And, he, and I asked him, well, how do you measure this? And he said, well, look, we have records of you know, throughput on the particular mechanism they have, which is similar to a kind of a potting of plant. And we can see throughput. And sure enough, these guys are three times more productive. And so undoubtedly, you know, this individual in particular, they can't find domestic labor that's reliable and that's going to show up, number one. Number two, they're seasonal. You know, in this case, they needed 80 seasonal workers. They don't, definitely don't need that many year-round workers. But three, you know, to find 3x the productivity of these workers, um, even with the investments in their housing and maybe higher wages, food, you know, these guys are not missing work. They're coming up to work. They're here to work. Good attitudes, you know, low drama. The ROI becomes pretty clear for them where it's sort of no, it's not even an if anymore. It's like, nope, we want these guys. And because they're so reliable and this is such a great opportunity for those workers, for this client in particular and, and across the board is that. They're highly incentivized to come back year after year, which means every year it saves the company on having to retrain. Year one, they're nervous. 
And we, we spend a lot more time with those clients in year one. But year two, guys get off the bus, they put their bags in the barracks, and they, they know exactly where to go. And they, they can just get to work. They want to work. They're happy to be there. It's not easy work by any means, but, but the opportunity is, is so, so big for them that they're willing to really dig in. Right. And that brings up another question I want to ask you, which is this idea of unskilled labor. To me, that, that is uh, not a term fitting in, in a lot of these situations that, you know, these are skills that these individuals have developed over, over years in, in a lot of cases. In some cases, it sounds like generations. Um, it doesn't seem like it's just uh, a job nobody wants to do, although in some cases it certainly is. But it, it can also be a skill that leads to the type of productivity you, you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is sort of an awkward term to kind of put. And I understand why, uh, at least my interpretation of why the federal government labels it that. And I think part of it is that they're comparing against the, say, H-1B visa, where you know you might be making a petition for, I need a, an AI engineer to do this specific job, and it's a highly skilled. And for some of the roles we're looking at, you know, it might just be like, look, we, we need a general farm laborer um, who can pick apples. And as long as they're able, capable, willing, and available, and you know, an able-bodied human, like we can take them. Undoubtedly, though, you're, you're right. I mean, you start to see these workers come in and their productivity, their work ethic, their collaboration, like, you know, the skills they have are anything but low skill. They're highly valuable. They get really well trained on the systems, and the nuances, um, especially, you know, I think about folks in the kind of uh, tree crop industry. It's like, you know, I've had to do a lot of almond pruning in my life growing up. And like, that was our main job. And the skills to be a great pruner for apple trees and vineyards. And that's like, man, talk about just, you know, to some extent, agricultural art, if I can sort of be so, so direct with that. But like, you know, very highly skilled workers that are worth all their, their weight in gold to those growers. Um, the operation we're at today, there's a specific guy there who he mixes a certain mix to develop a certain color that they use on this product. And it's just like, you know, he's just perfected this in a way. And this company has then taken that color that this guy develops around this plant and they can go, you know, that's, it's, it's a highly valuable skill he's developed. They can go uh, a better market and sell this product. And they're like, yeah, this is, you know, just an individual. We didn't necessarily know him before. Met him through this program. He's been here three or four years, come from Mexico. And now he's like so important to our operation. And so you, you certainly do love those stories and, and, and it shows, you know, there's much more than just kind of quote unquote low skill labor. Yeah, it also it, it kind of ties back to what we talk a lot about on the show, which is like ag technology and robotics. And I think we're we're learning that these jobs are not so easy to just replicate with a robot and, and you know, replace. Um, and I imagine given the business that you're in, you know, your thesis is that we're not going to see agricultural labor replaced anytime soon. So can you talk about how you think about technology in that way? And uh, we're going to get into later, like, you know, you making a bet on this company, essentially, um, and, and kind of why this is where you're placing your bet. Yeah, that is that's a, a really really good topic, and I got to say, there's uh, folks want to go deeper in that. There's this um, economist, Dr. Phil Martin's out of uh, University of California, Davis, and he looks at agricultural labor and productivity around agricultural labor and migrant labor and how that impacts the workforce and agriculture. and And he talks about you know that you know there's kind of three forces on agricultural labor. It's like obviously the the laborer themselves, it's technology, and then it's imports. You know, all those things are going to have an impact on how much labor we need and where and so forth. Rag. And I bring him up because he talks about technology in a, in a meaningful way in that where he sees the advancement happening in technology is going to be really meaningful in farms. And I, and I would agree with him on this, um, is that there's a lot more technology development that is going to aid the productivity of the worker than necessarily replace it. You know, there's a whole host of startup companies out there building pretty fantastic, you know, automation around, you know, there's a couple of harvesting machines for Apple growers that are just fantastic. These kind of vacuum type tools, there's strawberry pickers. Um, it's a whole host of really interesting robotics out there. but 
taking a little bit from Phil Martin's, you know, my my sort of thesis on this is, and I can think about the operation that's all today. They've got an H2A or a worker in there doing, you know, there's 30 different jobs to be done on that operation. It's probably five of those jobs as you look at them, you're like, oh yeah, you definitely could get a machine to do exactly what that person's doing. And they've already invested in some machines to make it easier for that work to do. But those are the 20 jobs that worker has to do that, yeah, you know, no one's going to build the robotics to go do that thing. There's just not enough market there or need or interest. And it's pretty technical still. You kind of need a human to make some general assessment. And so this farm in particular, you know, they might go automate 10 of those jobs, those 30, and maybe they reduce the numbers a little bit. But they need those workers. They want those workers. So they're going to shift them elsewhere in the operation to help in other things. And so, yes, you know, long term, and this certainly has happened, crops get uh, automated. I think about carrots. I think about processing tomatoes. I think about almonds, for example, what I grew up in. Once highly manual operations, now highly mechanical. But I think there are, there are other crops and a host of other activities in agriculture that are still going to necessitate a whole host of manual labor, not just for the next couple of years, but I'm talking decades out. And then part of that is because one, the technology won't be able to do it. Other parts of that, you know, it's really expensive to build robotics and some of these customized systems. And sometimes the problems get so quote unquote small that a VC backed startup is not really going to take the time to focus on that particular tiny challenge. You, you need a pretty big market to be able to attract the VC capital to build the robotics you need in today's day and age. So I, you know, I, I the long way of saying, you know, I still am very bullish on the idea that like, yeah, technology and automation is going to happen and it should. There's parts of the worker's job we can make a lot easier in agriculture, but the need for manual labor in the, in the United States is it's not going to weigh in agriculture. And I'm happy to dig into that on, on a whole different host. And then as someone who came from a technology background who was in kind of startup land prior to my current role, you know, I've, I've, I probably have come around on that at maybe 180 degrees, but um, I feel pretty firmly in that the need still for this agricultural labor and, and increasingly so. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us that have even just observed the space for a period of time have sort of arrived at that same conclusion that um, it, it's a yes and, you know, not not an either or. Along similar lines, though, if, you know, if I'm a farmer and I have some of this modern equipment and I need the right people to operate it, you know, because it's going to augment their skills, but I kind of need someone who knows their way around that equipment. Is that a skill set I can ask your group for to go help me find? Or is that something where I got to have that first year to really get them trained up and then, you know, try to attract them to come back year in, year out after that? Yeah, that's uh, an area we, we feel really strongly about because, yeah, one of the shifts that is certainly happening in the market is like, you know, yeah, you, you want that H2A worker to come in and not just pick apples, but now you want them to run some piece of machinery that's kind of expensive and pretty technical. And so there's a whole host of things we can do. One, given our size, we've got, you know, upwards of eight to 10 partners in Mexico and Guatemala and El Salvador and elsewhere who are, in addition to our own efforts, are recruiting for us and helping us find the right workers for the right seats. And because we bring in more workers than any of our competitors in the country by a significant amount, we've got a vast pool of workers to go try to find the right one from if, as an operation, you need a very specific worker. Additionally, you know, our capabilities don't just limit us to Central and South America. But for example, uh, we also work in South Africa. And part of the reason is there's a whole host of uh, grain operations in the Midwest that need, you know, folks to drive combines and, you know, uh, for a whole host of crops. And well, that's a pretty expensive piece of machinery. You can't just throw anybody on that. And so we actually go help get guys from South Africa who are used to driving these kind of machines on these size of operations. And we bring them in specifically to go help drive for these operations. And in that process, one of the things we can also help facilitate is if there's some initial uh, specific training that needs to be done, you know, we could work with the employers to get that training done with those workers. Um, or just help kind of facilitate that happening with them. And so thinking about the kind of the future of ag, I see more and more 
that it, the need probably becomes more than, hey, I just need a general farm worker to probably need some more specialized skills. So we can handle that. And when that request does come up, it doesn't come up as often as one might think today, but I think that's probably how we're trending. Very cool. Well, um, you've mentioned a couple of times kind of your background in agriculture growing up in the Central Valley, if I, if I remember right, almonds and grapes. Is that right? Yeah, almonds, grapes, and a little bit of sweet potatoes and corn kind of mixed in. But those by and large, especially almonds, that was kind of the cash crop there in California. Yeah, well, we'll talk more about kind of what led you from that to to ultimately acquiring and running this business. So um, did, did you know kind of this is the direction you wanted to go or kind of give, give us a little bit of the background? My interest in agriculture was uh, I started pretty young. So I, I did my undergrad at the University of California, Davis, and I studied international ag development and then technology management. So I was interested in technology, business, and agriculture. And spent most of my early career really in like what I'd call like ag tech innovation. You know, I, I had had my own startup building technology for small scale farmers. I worked for a short time with a big agrochemical company. I was helping other startups through consulting and advising. And, and did a whole host of things in ag technology. Really was on the side of like, look, there's a lot of problems in ag that could be used better technology. People aren't addressing them for a whole host of reasons. And then I had the opportunity to go to business school um, at Stanford. And, and there I came across the ETA model, this entrepreneurship through acquisition. And I went into business school thinking, look, I, I'm actually, I've got a, a handful of agricultural ideas I want to go launch. I'm going to need some funding. I'm going to need some technologists. And let's go do this in a pretty meaningful way. A lot of them related to labor and, and how do you like, be productive on farms either without labor or to help labor. And so during my time in business school, I came across this model, the ETA model, the entrepreneurship through acquisition, which is for folks who don't know, is the idea that you know you go build a bench of investors who are thinking about buying generally unsexy businesses that are going to be critical for the long haul. You know, we're not talking about two, three years, we're talking decades in terms of these businesses. And you build a group of investors that are not just uh, just investor-minded folks. But these are former operators, former CEOs who can help you build and grow this business. And so what you do is you go and you raise some funds and you go search. The, the idea is called a search fund. You go search for two years for this business based on your thesis. And um, my thesis, it was, you know, there are a vast majority of businesses in the United States, not just unique to agriculture, where the business owners, you know, baby boomers or others, don't have good succession plans. And I, I can't remember the stat off the top of my head. It was, a, it was an amazing stat in this book called uh, Buy Versus Build, which talks about the the alarming rate at which these individuals are retiring and don't have good succession plans. So there's a great opportunity out there to go buy really good businesses in maybe smaller markets people aren't aware of. You know, and you can grow them over the next two, three decades. Now, for me, you know, I have colleagues who went and did this in industries that they didn't really care about. They had a thesis about some random industry that had nothing to do with their background. For me, I'm like, look, I want to be in agriculture. This is what I care about. This is what I know. Um, I get that client. I get the pain of that client. And so my thesis was really around three things: labor. Water and inputs, and I thought about you know here these are the three things that if you know you want to drive my dad's heart pressure up you know you talk about the lack of any of those things and it's like it still pains him as a farmer, and so sure enough when I focus on ag labor and the need for it you go about an inch deep and you realize you know H two A visas have been growing about twenty percent a year for the last five years at minimum you don't see growth rates like that in agriculture that often and so um, long story short I dug in did my market analysis and, and realized like okay there's something going on really special here in ag labor. Uh, around age two, and came across Moss Labor and happened to find the, the owners are in their 70s looking to retire. David Libby are their names, great owners, built a really good, strong, reputable business, biggest in the industry. And, and you know, there was a lot of luck there to figure out the right timing. And we worked together uh, pretty closely for about seven or eight months to get to know each other, due diligence, and then 
cut to the chase, I ended up buying the business in July 2021. Moved my uh, wife, who was eight months pregnant at the time, and my two-year-old across the country. And, and so um, it's quite an eventful purchase. But we ended up relocating to Charlottesville, Virginia from California. And I've not been here for about two years. Well, Charlottesville, Virginia is a beautiful place uh, to end up. Uh, the, the birthplace of the best band of all time, the Dave Matthews Band. But uh, it's, that's, a, that's an aside. I won't go down that road. Uh, I do want to read, though, a LinkedIn message that I got in, in October 2020 from you. Uh, I've had several of these messages before and, and uh, you know, never amounted to somebody coming on the show, but it, it said, uh, just wanted to plant the seed that I'm looking to acquire a growing food agribusiness to personally operate and grow. At a high level, I've rallied 16 investors to bet on me to find a growing company, a certain criteria where the owner is looking to exit. Given your experience, exposure, and insight in food and agribusiness, please keep me in mind if you come across any such business. That's really cool. So I, I love that this is coming full circle, and here you are talking about ag labor and talking about your business. Uh, maybe share, if you can, share that criteria and share how difficult was it to get those 16 investors to to bet on you? Yeah. So the, the criteria is really, you know, you wanted to find a business that I'd say had, a, I think at the time when I was searching had, you know, you want at least like 15 to 20% EBITDA margins, you know, good profitability, uh, you know, a good healthy business, the good kind of doesn't have to be a big business, but good revenue. A business that had, had a track record of actually, you know, they, they clearly have found a pain point in the market. They could go solve. Also, I think in some ways, you know, I didn't, I don't want something that I did at the time, and I still don't want something that was, you know, driven by. And this is coming from a technologist, driven by the latest and greatest AI robotics. It's like, no, no, no. I want something that's going to stand the test of time. That you just absolutely need this service to help. And the criticality piece is huge. So as I looked at the market, my scorecard for evaluating businesses was really based on five things. I called it four plus one, and it was a model invented by one of my investors. And it's really. As you look at both the business or the industry, it's growth, the size, you know, growth of the business or the industry, size, criticality, and penetration. And then the plus one is if you get those four things, you've got a growing company, a decent size, an underpenetrated market that's hypercritical to their clients. The fifth thing you want to go find, the plus one, the cherry on top, is like, okay, is the business model a healthy business model? You know, in agriculture, I thought, man, I'm only going to find heavy capex. You know, businesses with I've got to buy all these warehouses and or I've got to buy a bunch of machinery. And so, you know, professional services, obviously not having all that capex is, is fantastic. And so, so this business checked all those boxes plus some, you know, really strong recurring revenue, really helping businesses is a really strong mission here. If we win, Moss Labor wins, American businesses win, and those workers in Mexico win, which has a whole host of positive socioeconomic and political implications, which is, you know, part of my. Backstory is part of my drive on this as well. It's like we can actually we can actually help some businesses here do really really well, and those workers like thrive, and that, that's impactful. And so I checked those boxes plus some. And um, the the idea of the search is you really get very methodical about the industry you focus in because it's really easy to get distracted, and you want to get like really really deep and, and methodical and have a build a lot of conviction because that's sort of how you bring those investors on board. Which is you know I needed to be. The expert on this industry, they weren't going to necessarily be the ag. And I've got some investors that are food and ag based, but like they, the majority of them are they're operators, they're former CEOs or current CEOs. I needed them to have conviction that like I had done my diligence on this business to understand that it, it met those five, those four criteria plus the kind of the plus one. And in my mind, you know, the criticality piece is the most important one. And I was buying this business. I started my search in 2021. Actually, no, in 2020. Started searching in 2020. So, you know, the world's just like a little bit 
wonky in 2020. And so it just was like the criticality just meant a lot. And as an aside, you know, during COVID, this there were some hiccups, but certainly, you know, this business stayed and remained really consistently strong. I don't know if that answered that, but yeah. Yeah, you did. No, in those in those investors. So essentially the pitch to the investors is I'm raising this much money. And some percentage of that, I imagine, goes to pay you while you're finding the business. The rest goes to acquire the business. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so you you raise a you raise a certain amount of money to cover yeah your salary and and you know you have to do some travel and you have to go visit sellers and so forth. So a little bit of that, and the investors put just that initial you know what is relatively a small amount of money in. And the idea is, hey, if I go find something and everybody approves, then everyone you know dig into your pocket. We'll go put money forward on this. If we have to go get additional capital, we can at that point. But Basically, they give me a two-year runway. There's no guarantee I find a business. And other people who take the same routes, you know, they don't. They sometimes I have colleagues who went down this route and they didn't find a business at the end of two years. That's kind of painful, but it's it's the bet the investors take. And so, in a way, they they are actually betting on you as an individual. Can you execute this search? And then, can you execute as a CEO? And you know, is your thesis sound enough that uh, you know you know what you're actually looking for, uh, and you can go find it? And so that's that's really the bet on them. It's you know, uh, it's a bet on me. And how much of that two years did it take you to find this opportunity? And were there other close contenders along the way? I got really fortunate. You know, on average, I think it takes people about 13 months. Well, let me think about that. I guess I'd say it's at least a year to get under LOI, to get a letter of intent, which means you've got somebody on the hook that you think is committed enough to go buy it. And then I don't quote me on this, but I want to say it's like anywhere between 16 and 18 months for them to actually close. So almost the full two years, call it a year and a half. I started my search in September of 2020, met the founders in December of 2020, and bought the business in started as CEO July 1 of 2021. So in less than 12 months, I was able to find it, buy it. And now I'd love to say I had this perfect, you know, like scripted plan. I, you know, there's a lot of luck, a lot of hard work went into that, but certainly a lot of luck, a lot of support from my spouse, a lot of just, you know, kind of hitting the grindstone, if you will. Um, and, and I got just really fortunate. I, I think part of it is I had a really good supportive group of investors that were supportive for me to go really, really deep on an industry. Uh, you know, a lot of people, if you're not used to ag, look at agriculture and be like, well, that's that kind of feels small or that feels and in my mind I was like, no, 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 there's something here. Like ag is a special place and let's let's go dig here. And so um, it took me much less time than I would have expected and, and less than the average. Yeah. Well, kudos to you. I mean, just just looking at the amount of inbound messages I get from people who are wanting to do the same thing that I never hear from again, I'm going to guess uh, it's something that's very difficult to do. And sure, there's always some timing and luck into any success, but but certainly your hustle um, had to play a big, big part of that. And of course, your deep expertise in this area. Uh, I'm curious how many of those 16 investors that supported you in your search ended up investing in the company? Uh, all of them, all of them, and and a number of them wanted even more, wanted more percentage of, of what they had allocated. I think a part of it is that they saw the business, it's just, and it, you know, there's something inherent. I wish it maybe, maybe I wish it wasn't the case, but uh, you know, I don't know actually if I fully agree with that. But there's this inherent kind of guttural reaction to like, yeah, we all probably understand that you know American parents aren't raising their kids to go pick apples and mow lawns, and these jobs still need to be done. And so you think about industry tailwinds and. It's like, yeah, it actually kind of makes sense. Like, we need this labor, and our immigration system is not going to get fixed anytime soon. So, like, this is kind of the best we got. And so, to have a company that does this well with a good reputation, uh, you know, certainly people ask questions at first, but I think when people got it and intrinsically understood the business and what we were trying to solve, like, clearly all the investors got on board and were, were really excited by it and, and remained that way. Excellent. And and you've only been at this a little over two years now, and uh, you've already made an acquisition, right? So Moss Labor has purchased AgWorks. Am I understanding that correctly? 
Yeah, AgWorks and Moss had a, had a pretty close relationship for many years, but we, we've really kind of like purchased and merged here in the last year in a meaningful way. AgWorks, you know, was founded by an individual named Dan Bremer. Dan Bremer is a former U.S. Marine officer. Uh, he then worked for the Department of Labor in Georgia as like this, I think, you know, managing a whole huge region down in the Southeast, had a ton of experience in the space and just great reputation, strong backbone, good moral ethics, and saw that he could help farmers in that part of the country do this. And so he started AgWorks about 25 years ago. And the former owners and him got really close. And, you know, we kind of felt like sister companies in a lot of ways. But in the last two years, we've really kind of completed the purchase and merger and, and brought everyone together. So it's been good. I mean, it's a great group of folks. And we added another office uh, in South Georgia, which is a fantastic client base and, and team. Hmm. And so, you know, two years into it, you've made two acquisitions now, you know, rocking and rolling with this stuff, which is so cool and inspiring to me. I'm curious, you know, financially, you don't have to reveal your personal details, but I'm curious, is this providing the financial rewards for you that you thought it would? I would say, you know, the part of the structure, and, and this is the trade-off I think people take, is that, you know, there are other models out there. If folks are looking to buy a business and flip them in three years and um, take your chips off the table, like this isn't that. And so for me, it's like, I, I really am thinking about this as a decades play. And I say decades, in plural, specifically because, you know, we're moving aggressively in the market. We're not taking anything for granted. We're not taking any round of competition for granted or resting on our laurels. And so we're moving pretty aggressively, but but really the you know, my MO and the business's MO is like, let's plan for the long haul. If there's any profits, let's reinvest. Let's grow the business. Let's invest in technology. And so I would say for me, you know, my financial situation hasn't really changed. Um, besides the fact that, you know, Virginia is much more affordable than the Bay Area where it was before. So that, you know, I can uh, can actually afford a backyard feels pretty, pretty positive out here. But but by and large, you know, that you know, everything's being poured back into the business to say, let's let's continue to grow this thing aggressively and really serve our clients in a meaningful way because it's not getting any easier to do this. Right. And if you did want kind of a, a five-year turnaround to, and you know, build the business and sell it in five years, all the investors get their money and that's great. Uh, but to, considering you want it to be a decades thing, if your investor's time horizon isn't quite that long, do you kind of buy them out over time? Is that the idea? Yeah, there, there are points in time where certain investors can peel off if they say, you know what, this is great. I kind of I want to get my chips back. I you know, got to send my kids to college or something. That, that can happen. I would say, by and large, that the big signal from all the investors, from all the bigger investors and some of the smaller ones as well, is we've got something really special here. Like, let's hang on to this. Let's really grow this in a meaningful way. Maybe some chips come off the table over time. But by and large, I think everyone, if I gave them the chance to put more money into the business and invest even more, uh, they all would. They would do that. So inspiring. Thank you so much for doing this, Edward. I really appreciate it. Anything else you'd like to get on the record before I stop the recording here? I guess maybe the only other thing is maybe my maybe my take, which is I actually think net net H two workers are help our country be a better country. And all the employers I talk to, it's like, yeah, we hire more American workers because we have more reliable labor and H two workers, and so we can grow our, our actual business in a meaningful way. And that just seems to be a misconception people have, like they're taking American jobs. No, you know. And so I, I think uh, if people come to this episode skeptical, I would say hopefully they understand that like you know these are engines for American prosperity in a pretty meaningful way. All right. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so very much to Edward Silva for being on the show. Cool story of finding a great business and running it and really uh, enlightening information about the H2 process and, and the importance of getting ag labor in this way. If you'd like to learn more about Moss Labor, just go to their website, which is just mosslabor.com. M-A-S-L-A-B-O-R.com. Thank you so much to FarmWave for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. Visit them at farmwave.io. 
show. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Innovation.